Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Okay, ready? What you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a wheel. I want to know something she's I think about everyone you need. I hold in it, things are rooting real now. I have seen you wanting you. Hey, it's a ratio. Okay, though. It's a ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. I mainly write in silence, but sometimes uh, there was this one uh, album, several albums I would play just to get me amped. Yeah. yeah, to get Just into get it. At, yeah. Like what? Okay, old school Biggie would yeah. definitely take me there. And the I got first one or second one? Second one. Okay, Ever after death. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I'm so happy Daylight is streaming now because the Loon Mind State was Woo. like that Daylight break of dawn, dead. man. Daylight was, oh my God. Um, uh, but a lot of a lot of jazz. Definitely. Yeah. A lot of jazz. They're doing so much. They're so active. Well, that's I what I mean. Well, the thing is, is like, if the horns are going and if you got, you know, someone like Elvin Jones on the drums, your heart rate is going to blow up. <laughs> it's going to just like get you in that space where your mind is just popping. And that's what I need. I need my mind to kind of like associate. Major Jackson is one of the great poets of our time and an old friend of mine. He's got a podcast about poetry called The Slowdown. He's got a new book coming out called Razzle Dazzle. And he's just a brilliant poet, professor, and person who's been a friend of mine forever. I just want to experience the depth of the thought of what poetry is really all about. It's Major Jackson on Touré Show. So, I want to take him back to when I met you. Yes. Because I was working in this jazz club restaurant that Philadelphians will know, Zanzibar Blue, owned by two very cool brothers who looked out for me and hired me. And I'm walking through, and there's this guy wearing a T-shirt. And I can see the T-shirt said, Back to Africa. I'm like, okay, cool. And I think the second time I peeped the T-shirt, because it's like this young brother about my age, 
And it says, back to Africa with a white woman. I'm uh -oh. like, no, wait a minute. <laughs> back to Africa with a white woman. And I stopped and I was like, yo, what, what, is, what is this? And he's like, yo, I'm a poet. My name is Major Jackson. This is my book of poetry. And I think your partner on that was a friend of a friend. Wadud Ahmad. Somebody I hadn't met. Yes. Or had no, so then... So then we started going to poetry stuff together. And I saw some of the genius in that. I remember, I remember we went to some poetry slam and like, we had like hung out all day. So like, it's like, like I knew what you had, right? I knew kind of the poems you were working on and we were together all day. And then it was like, oh, I got to write something for this thing tonight. And I'm, and we're sort of like walking there and you're kind of writing ideas and we're sitting there waiting for your turn and you're writing ideas. And then you got up and you gave this amazing poem. And I'm like, I saw him write this. And he wrote this like right in front of me, like pretty quickly. And it was really fucking good. And I was like, shit, this nigga something else. And I was like 35 years ago or some shit. Yes. Yeah, that, that would have been about 30 years ago. I remember that moment. Well, first of all, let's give props to the Bynums creating a space. Robert and, Robert and, and Ben, ben Bynum. Hell yeah. Santa Bar Blue, and then afterwards with Warm Daddies. And they, from what I understand, they're still doing their thing in the culinary field in, in Philly. But that was the scene, and that was the place to be. Now, what's interesting about that story is that I've told my sons, I said, I was wearing a T-shirt, not with Back to Africa, with a white woman, which was a chat book that Wadud and I uh, put together while we were in our last year at Temple University. Uh, but you're, you're, now that you say it, there was a T-shirt. Now I think about it. But I had on a T-shirt with Langston Hughes on it. Okay. And you rolled through and was like, you must be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're saying you remember the story differently. Yeah. Oh, I, no, no, I had on I had, white woman's I had on Langston Hughes t-shirt and you were, I don't know, maybe you dropped down the drinks, but you were like, you must be a writer. And I was like, how do you know that? And then you pointed to my shirt. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and I, I, first of all, you know, bad love for you, man. I remember I remember that moment very well, and I remember what happened afterwards because yeah. you had just left Emory, yeah, and you were making your way up to New York to be a writer. And I was like, that was the goal. That was kinfolk. I was like, yes. I love that ambition. Yes, I love that drive. I questioned the wisdom of dropping out of Emory <laughs> at the time, but you know, but you did it. So I was, you know, quite proud of that. I had just started writing for. Um, Chris Wilder at the source. Mm. And if I remember correctly, I said, here's somebody you should rap to. Mm. Yeah. Chris. And I can even tell you your first piece in the source. Remind me. I remember, but let's see if you remember. It was um, Arrested Development. Am I right? Uh, I think I did something. Before that? Before that. Okay. But I had somehow okay. I had had. I had a way of of connecting with speech from Arrested right, Development. Right. Did a phone interview with him, and the source was hardcore hip hop. They were not interested in <laughs> no. no. Well, that was what was unique about that moment. I was yeah. like, how did 
How did Teray get them a little feature? And it wasn't a full page. No, I, no. It was like, no, no, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no. yeah. They're not from the hood. We don't <laughs> yeah, really right. care about them. <laughs> but so you went on to make a whole life in poetry, writing, teaching. How do you do that? Because, you know, there's not that much money in the poetry game. No, no, it, there isn't. And for me, it was driven by the legacy of the teachers who inspired me, Sonia Sanchez at mm -hmm. Temple University, um, the, the the poets who I admired at that time, who's, if you remember, we, we used to call ourselves conscious. Mm -hmm. And you had to know, you know, an Amiri Baraka poem, or you had sure. to know a Nikki Giovanni poem. So, sure. so those were my models, and they allowed me to see myself as someone who could be a writer, be an activist, participate in the struggle from a space of, of imagination and creativity, um, and and to be and to, to be frank, you know, I was an accounting major. At Temple, like my life was, I think your dad was an accountant. He too, was an accountant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think yeah. I remember that. Um, so you know, it must have been a passion, you know. Now, I still got my accounting degree. <laughs> you know, like I still worked after graduation as an accountant, but then it was until I think it was the Pew felt the Pew Foundation granted awards to local artists in Philadelphia, and I was fortunate to receive one of those grants that allowed me to write for two years. That was the $50,000 grant? That was $50,000 $50, in 1996. That was a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the spirit of the black arts movement mm -hmm. where folks were like, I, you know, I'm, I'm down for revolution and liberation. I'm not going to be holding a gun or fighting in the streets like the Panthers mm -hmm. and Malcolm R, but I, my heart is with them. So I'm gonna write a poem or sing a song or something cultural that expresses an aggressive affinity with them, right? Yeah. And 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 that was Nikki Giovanni, that was Amir Baraka, Leroy Jones, mm -hmm. that was you know mm -hmm. Sonia Sanchez, these sort of people. Um, and you and I, in a way, took that spirit forward. I think we're the link. Yeah. You know, we we are the folks who were young inspired by their writings, inspired by the spirit of resistance that they just embodied and walked, walked around in. You know, this, this, it was in the music, no doubt. And that was our other connection. If, if you'll recall, um, the music somehow facilitated a possibility of in one's self, in one's language, in one's, um, uh, imagination and unapologetically, you know what I mean? There was no, there was no, we did not have to worry about, for example, like being institutionally excluded like they were mm. like, yeah. you know, I think about the fact that Amiri Baraka came up for tenure at, at Stony Brook and never got tenure. And we know why. Wow. Right. Um, uh, so I, 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 I took lessons from them. I also realized that poetry was a craft and somehow deepening that craft has been one of the most fulfilling and sustaining something I could not have predicted uh, back then. Wow. Um, 
you know, th- there is the outward facing aspect of, of poetry. Like you're, you're going to understand where I stand regarding uh, immigration. You're going to understand where I stand regarding gun control, all of that. But then there are private moments, of course, uh, over the years since we've seen each other in which when I could not um, speak to someone else, I had to go inward and the poem facilitated that kind of, that measure, that, mm. that getting a grasp on the world around me and the people in my life. Well, take me a step back. How do you write a good poem? And anybody can write a bad poem. Mm. Um, well, I've always set a personal bar for myself. And this is, this is in a quest to obtain a voice and a style. So early on, and maybe this is the influence of hip hop. And I kind of talk about this in my introduction to best American that I edit best American poetry, 2019. I, I need a level of wit to be on the surface of the poem. First and foremost, I need to, I need to have not so much like, you know, some sort of performative intelligence, but to use language in such a way that it's not blah, you know? So that's first and foremost. And that's my own personal, you know, somebody else wants to keep a plain style. Uh, Metaphor is very important for me because it's through metaphor that someone's going to make see the web that is my brain right one thing is is like this and that's where wit comes in and 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 drill down there the yeah. sorts of metaphors that you are drawing mm-hmm. tells me who you are and that's what right. your frame of reference is it's that's not right. enough to just say x is like y I got to say that in a way that communicates something more. Yeah. Why is he thinking about this in relationship to that? Because that's his frame of reference. It's a statement of personality. Mm. It, it's a history of what I've come across and what you've come across. And hopefully I just created a new bridge between us because I said one thing is like X. Yeah. Yeah. My other, my other uh, quest for a good poem um, is one in which I just, frankly, I get bored. Like I get bored reading sometimes. So I'm aiming for a level of inventiveness and authenticity of, of seeing. Like I want to I utter something that no one in the history of the English language has said, yes. has said before. Yes. Now, that's almost, that's virtually impossible. But, you know, if we... If you reach for it, you're going to stumble upon it at some point. I mean, I think about that a lot of times, and I think it's a little bit easier in prose, Mm -hmm. but I definitely don't want to use any of the phrases that are common Mm. that have already, I've already heard. That's right. Right? Like, break it up. That's right. Like, even if I'm saying I walk down the street. Right. And I don't want to say I perambulated down the (laughs) avenue because that makes fun of itself. (laughs) But can I find an interesting way of saying I walk down the street. Well, that, it is the wall that all writers, no matter their genre, has to kind of cross. And to some extent, you don't want to alienate the reader. Like if you say 
perambulate. That might throw, throw up like some, somebody going to their dictionary. Damn, what, what well, it drops mean right you there? out of the text yeah, to go, that's right. what is this word, yeah. right? I don't want to scare you away right. from the text. <laughs> I want to suck you into the text. That's right. And that absorption, you know, I think readers come to writings much in the same way that they go to films. They want to be absorbed to the point where the world around them yes. is not immediate and pressing upon them. Um, I'm trying not to use the word escape, for example, but there, there's an example, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so writing a good poem versus writing uh, a great poem is really contingent upon what the writer has um, imagined for themselves that feels impossible. And in that reach, I can feel when somebody reaches for greatness in that way. And we know it because we feel it. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If every word in a poem, much more scrutiny Mm -hmm. than in prose or in fiction, because you're working with a far smaller number of words. That's right. So you got to really microscope every word. And is this the right choice in terms of meaning, in terms of poetry, in terms of rhythm and Right. I mean, as prose, I'm thinking about rhythm, but uh-huh. not not the way that you have to. No, no. And and as a novelist, uh, you know, uh, your canvas is big. I mean, yeah. like you got a you got a Jean-Michel Basquiat studio that you're working with. And I just got this little square yes. of a page. And as a result, what you're saying is absolutely um, correct. Um, and I think because of that scrutiny, that's another reason why I think it's important to aim um, for the the authentic, uh, to aim for, you know, Ezra Pound called it, make it new. You know, always the reader has to be uh, surprised. And at some point you leave your apprentice stage. Like when I was younger, I literally had, almost like a checklist of what I wanted the major Jackson poem to sound like, Mm. what subjects I wanted to address, which for me were very personal coming out of North Philadelphia and Germantown and thinking about, um, uh, the, the, how black folk were pathologized. And I wanted to write against that. And that was very important to me thematically, but on the, on the aesthetic side of things, I literally had a checklist and at some point it becomes just part of your your DNA and how you walk and how you and how you talk. So is I feel great this year. My sixth book is going to publish. It's wow. a collected um of my first five books along with some some new poems. So Wow. It's a vision. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. 
Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Your relationship with the audience is very important as a writer. And as I'm writing, I'm thinking about, are they understanding? Do they understand these references? Do they understand the argument? Have you made the argument enough? I'm, I'm constantly mm -hmm. thinking, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I want most of the readers, right? Some of them are going to miss it. But is, is the average person who I'm expecting to read this going to understand? Mm -hmm. am, am I losing them? Am I winning them over? Whatever. For a poem, it's not the same. Mm. I... I feel like poets, I want you to not fully understand. I want you to be confused, or at least I want you, like, for me to understand a good poem, I have to put in more work. Right. To do prose and fiction, I'm like, I'm doing most of the work for you. Right? Do the imagination and come with me. Right. But for, but for you guys, for poets, you want the reader to work more. Some poets do. And they they want to for various reasons. I think the most opaque poem is a, is kind of solipsistic. That's okay. that's someone who's writing a poem that is really not thinking about an audience or a reader. Um, the great late poet Etheridge Knight used to talk about the poet, the poem, and the people. Right. And I subscribe to that particular equation. So to some extent. I'm I'm always thinking about about audience. Um, there was this group of poets in the late 1970s, 1980s here in America who had believed that language had been co-opted by capitalist forces, Absolutely. and as a result, they just wanted to kind of disrupt your relationship to language to kind of wake you up, or as the Russian twentieth uh, early twentieth century Russian futurists believed, they wanted to kind of defamiliarize language so that you can have a new relationship with language and thus yourself. 
that's not my agenda. It doesn't emerge out of the tradition that I kind of write out of, but I, I respect that particular purview. So I'm not going to totally, totally diss them. But the, 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 the tradition that I emerge out of, you know, begins with Langston Hughes passed on down to Gwendolyn Brooks passed on down to, um, black arts. It's one in which art is art. Like you don't want to, you, you still want language to perform, um, a, a level in which, as Sonia used to to used to say to us in class, you know, a high bar had been set, you know, by previous generations, and yes. you got to go there. Yes. Um, but it is one in which the tradition that I emerge out of is one in which it's a continuum of consciousness. I am carrying forward conversations about um, about my freedom and how that freedom is manifested in. My art, yes. and that's why I can't fully say, "Well, here, reader, here's the poem, and it's a puzzle. You go for it." Yes, but um, but we also have some of that. Like there's this wonderful poet Harriet Mullins, and another dear wonderful poet uh, Erica Hunt, who emerge out of an, a, a tradition of experimentation. But they're but they're operating within the framework as, um, uh, well, first as poets, black poets, black female poets, and in the case of Harriet, black female poet from the Southwest, where there was a number of a tradition down there of conversation. Now we talk about Texas, Juneteenth, and the consciousness around being a black a black Texan. Um, yeah. So so in a lot of ways, I do think. Um, audience is important. Poetry can be difficult. Sometimes you got to wrestle with that difficult, but I always try to encourage readers too, not to, not, not to feel like they have to kind of get everything on one reading. Poetry right. is, is not built for that. Right. In fact, I would even say poetry is great because it, it always opens up something each time you read it. You can always go back to a poem and something emerges um, available to you, mainly because of you're bringing a new experience and awareness to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I was in, um, God, what was that? I think it was in graduate school. I tried to do a paper about the blackness of black novels. Mm. Mm. Very, very difficult. I don't think I finished <laughs> it because I couldn't really identify mm -hmm. what is black about these pieces more than just black subject matter. Mm -hmm. But so I'm going to make you answer the question. Um, <laughs> very hard <laughs> question to answer. But there is something substantively black about some of the poems that we love mm -hmm. and the poets that we love. Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to put my finger on. What is it that we are loving and responding to in their work? It was a wonderful critic, Stephen Henderson, who wrote a seminal noun classic book on this called Understanding Black Poetry. Yes, I have this. He, um, he talks about, and, and there's been critics come along, it's like an essentialist there's a there's something just essential about blackness, and yes. they tried to frame it with words like soul, 
Right. Or MassCon. Cool. Yeah, cool. Right. Um, uh, vernacular, black vernacular. Um, I personally, for me, if I, if I think about, I grew up in the church and I grew up in the streets and I had great teachers, both Catholic school and public schools in Philadelphia. When you are kind of immersed, my, my friend talks about black summers. Like, you know, if you grew up North grandparents or aunts and uncles were down South, suddenly you're immersed in a culture that is so kind of full of love, full of expression. Uh, one in which you're, you're, you're so cocooned in that. Sometimes also going from like the speed of the urban, urban to the calm of the rural. Do you remember in Crooklyn when Spike Lee has, I think the sister goes down and he cuts to like a spaghetti Western mm-hmm. uh, aesthetic. Like that, that felt the, right the to pace, me. The pace, the grass, man, the outdoors, the light. It was uh, the heat and how that humidity also affects one's sense of time. It's gorgeous, just beautiful. And I, I think when, when it finds expression in a work of art, painting, music, poetry, um, it has no other outlet but to come out as something that's essential and, and felt. Man, I can, I can, I, I'm not a theorist. I cannot write, you know, a 200 mono, page monograph on this, but we, we feel it. And I think other people feel it too. In fact, feel it so much so that they exoticize it and want to bank it. You know, they want to mm-hmm. turn it, turn it into something. But it's real. Very real. It's very real. And it's life-sustaining. It That's is. the other part. It is. It's life-sustaining. Um, read, do me a favor, read something from your new one, Razzle Dazzle. Mm-hmm. And then see if you could take me through some of the choices you made as a writer. Okay. And why you said, I'm going to do this word, this line, this rhythm, whatever, so I can kind of hear it and then see it through the writer's eyes. Okay. Um, This is the first poem that opens opens the book. And it started with this image, you know, I'm a father. Yes. And it was always a ritual to go to either Atlantic City or Long Beach Island, Jersey with the kids. And, as I, you know, moving further away from their younger years, just had this image of all of them on the beach and that that space in which they are so self-absorbed in their play. And I said somewhere in the interview, that's a quote that's going around now. I wrote it last year. Um, I don't think there's any other more sacred place on earth than a black, than a brown child's imagination. Mm. And that image took me to this particular poem. Let me begin again. Let me begin again as a quiet thought in the shape of a shell, slowly examined by a brown child on a beach at dawn, 
straining to see their future. Let me begin this time knowing the drumming of my dreams is me inheriting the earth, is morning lighting up the rivers. Let me burn my vanities, old music in the pines, snifters of scotch, a day moon like a signature of night. This time, let me circle the island of my fears only once, then live like a raging waterfall and grow a magnificent mustache. Let me not ever be the birdcage or the serrated blade or the empty season. Dear glacier, dear sea of stars, dear leopards disintegrating at the outer limits of our greed, soon we will encounter you only in motivational tweets. Reader, I should have married you sooner. This time, let me not sleep like the prophet who believes he's seen infinity. Let me run at breakneck speeds towards sceneries of doubt. I have no more dress rehearsals to attend. Look closer. I am licking my lips. So that image of the child on the beach like a lot of my poems begins, a lot of my poems begins with an image. And I often reflect on my self as a father, as a man, as a partner. Of course, there's regrets back there, but there's also in recognizing those regrets at any point in our lives, it opens up <clears throat> the opportunity to start over because you can begin with a new consciousness, hopefully some lessons learned, and hopefully some wisdom. So I, I remember the morning of writing this particular poem. I'm always someone who wants music. I mean, we live in an age in which, you know, rhyme and meter is not what you go, you don't go to rhyme and meter unless you're like doing pop music. Um, so repetition is how I create. Music. So that's the first thing is that I, I'll get that image and I'll get that phrase and I'm wanting that phrase to take me to the next image. So the repetition of the phrase creates a sense of rhythm. That's right. And it becomes incantatory. And something about the ritual of repeating and that incantation in a way conjures up what's coming next. To my surprise, the poem um, wants to push against a passiveness wants to push against um, uh, uh, addictions and snifters of scotch and that sort of thing. Um, and also I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the climate. I'm thinking about um, what we're doing to the environment, dear glacier, dear sea of stars, dear leopards disintegrating at the outer limits of our greed. Um, so I, I, for, for this to be the opening poem of the book, I see this like as a, as a pivot moment in my life as a writer, one who wants to, um, not kind of clear my throat towards writing something that is going to address these issues, but there's no more dress rehearsal. This is the moment right now. So hopefully, you know, Someone reading this, again, that's an oral, oral rendition of it. Sure. Hopefully those themes push through when they sit down and read it. 
you you can't write this just like you, <laughs> like you write it, you microscope it. You are you moving stuff? Are you re? This, this not this word. Different yeah. word. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I I'm sure this poem went through at least ten to fifteen revisions. Right. Yeah, and that's mainly because I don't know about you, but I'm a little restless with myself. I well, first of all, I need distance. I can't. I I. I try not to put work out too soon in the world after I, I need to have that distance to know whether or not it's banging. If it's, if it's not banging, then I'm going to come at it. That distance also allows me not to be so attached to it as well. Those early drafts. Um, so yeah, this, this probably, I probably added more repetition, repetition to it. And some of the images, there was a lot more that I scaled back. Mm. Yeah. Mm. The, what, knowing what to cut is so important. Dude, nothing kills a piece like it being overwritten. <laughs> Just like, could he come on? Like, let's go. <laughs> and because of the, you know, we were talking about the canvas of a novel or short story versus um, a poem, to some extent, the poet relies on that brevity and that speed because the wisdom has to hit and it has to hit at the right moment. Sometimes, particularly with my students, they, they said the thing that needs to be said and they can just like cut it right there, just mm. end it so that the reader can live with that, that brightness, that epiphany, that insight, that, force of intellect and feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take me, yeah. Take me through the process of, of writing. Is, mm-hmm. Did you write with a pen or you write on the computer? I, man, I, I pull everything, my phone. I've been using the notes, uh, creating notes on my phone. Um, definitely pen. The composing happens at the computer when I'm pulling it, uh, pulling it. Are you together. a morning person with the writing? Or is it all day I'm late long? night. Late night? Yeah, yes. when everybody's gone to bed yes. and I can just like it's quiet. exist the in that. Like. phone's not going <laughs> to ring. The game Kids is off. Gonna, yeah, right. <laughs> oh, I can't write during the game. I'm so focused. <laughs> Terrible. But the game is over. Yeah. yeah. The world is quiet. Nothing's changing. Yeah. Now I can I, drill down. I'm in my office at home. Lots of books. Got a little music system in there that's. Uh, you write in quiet or you write with music? A lot of times I'm, I got something back there. No words, all instrumental. Yeah, right? If he's or she's talking, can't have two, right? I can't no. hear myself think. Exactly. I don't want any music. I hear you. I want silence. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mainly write in silence, but sometimes uh, there was this one uh, album several albums I would play just to get me amped. Yeah. To get into it. Like what? Okay. Old school Biggie would definitely take me there. And I got to get second one. Second one. Okay. Life after death. Yes. 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 Um, I'm so happy. Dayla is streaming now because balloon mind state was like that. Break of dawn, man. Dayla. Oh my God. Um, uh, but a lot of a lot of jazz, definitely. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
a lot of jazz. They're doing so much. They're so active. Well, that's what I mean. Well, the thing is, is like if the horns are going and if you got, you know, someone like Elvin Jones on the drums, your heart rate is going to blow up. (laughs) It's going to just like get you in that space where your mind is just popping. And that's what I need. I need my mind to kind of like associate. For a long time, there was an argument in the culture of like, is rap poetry? Mm. And I think at first as a, I think at first I said no, because I was like purist, like that's over there and that's Uh over there. And I also was like, you know, I've read some poetry guys your lyrics are great but you're <laughs> you're not doing what Amiri Baraka and Sonia Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni are doing I'm sorry I love you but you know and then um I think it was Harry Allen the mm. great writer who was like mm. no I don't want them compared because hip-hop does not need to stand on poetry to be great Right, I think it was at a time when we needed to understand that argument, liken it right. to other things. That's it's right. New jazz, get some cred. Poet, get some right? cred. And it was like, no, hip hop is good on yeah. its own. Yeah. Don't need a crutch or whatever or be aligned. But what did, what do you what do you think? Well, first and foremost, I taught a. I had to stop teaching it. Hip hop. I taught a class called um, Poetry is uh, Hip Hop is Poetry. That class would fill. Literally, as soon as registration opened, it was done. You it said like, hip hop, and we're all and it was up. like y'all signing up exactly. Yes. And there was, you know, I tried to maintain a wait list. It was ridiculous, and it would be mostly and then black people, kids. No, no, <laughs> it was all white kids. Oh no, we are talking University of Vermont. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> so when you had a black kid in the class, you'd be like, "Hi, Ashe." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so nice to see you, my sister, my brother. Right. No, it was, it was, it was, it was great because one of my homies, wonderful writer, Adam Bradley, wrote this wonderful book where mm-hmm. he breaks down, mm-hmm. you know, that was the text that I, that I use. Um, but, but, you know, what took me there is because the rappers always called themselves poets. Yeah. But you know the, what I mean? Like, how many? What, have you read any poetry? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which and, it was, just, and some of them did more than just name drop. You know what I mean? Like Rakim, Rakim as you know, different. Rakim is different, right? Rakim knows the art, he knows the craft, and he knows how to even pun on the craft. Yes, like clearly. I mean, right? he was a master saxophonist in high school. No. And was like his whole family Whoa, was players. That I didn't know. And he was by far the youngest. So he's growing up like listening so to he's his improv. Listening yes. to his sister singing, listening to his brother playing, and he became one of the great saxophonists. As like sixteen years old, like went to some competition in New York State for it. So part of what he was doing is he was mimicking the jet the horn. Right. right. Now that you say that, it's clear. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It makes um, a lot of sense. I mean, I think most of those people who were saying that we're like poets had never read any poetry. True. Then Adam put out, which is great, mm-hmm. the Yale Book of Rap. Mm-hmm. And then you can start interrogating the actual lyrics. And in fact, one of my dream issues of the Harvard Review is to get in touch with uh, my favorite rappers and ask them if I can reprint or, you know, like 
Black Thought, like, yo, could you send us a rap that we can publish as a poem? And what you're going to see in there is all the, the great thinking across multiple areas, history, literature, which is interesting because this is the, the, the great debate right now with MCs is that they don't have that kind of depth and reach into, okay, I don't want to open up Pandora's box here. I don't want to be like back in my day. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But the bar was high. I'm going to go back to it. Like the bar was high. Um, So, you know, the, the, the great eras, let's put it that way. My wish is that the art itself becomes more informative to how folks go about dropping their bars, dropping their lyrics. Because what they're what they're going to find, and this is why I, you know, this is why I wanted to teach it, was because I knew also emergent poets could learn something from the rappers about how to how to use rhythm in such a way that it becomes generative of the next thing that you're going to, that you're going to say. Okay. Okay. Um, and vice versa, any aspiring rappers, and there were some, I even have them on video, uh, cause they would stand up and like do their thing. Um, could learn that it was more than just party. It was more yeah. than just braggadocio. Yeah bragging on a song. It was, it was something about embodying a freedom in that moment. And that's something that I wish more people talked about. Here were young, black, Latina boys, girls writing their freedom in a space that no other space allowed them to exist in. I, I think something can be poetic uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I've loved hip-hop. It's been my right. central culture forever. Right. Without it being... And you po- documented it. Yeah, without yeah. being poetry. Right. And I think saying it's poetry misunderstands what actual poetry is. One hopes... One hopes that it's a gateway drug. Is it? Have you seen that? I'm not sure I've seen so that. So Nikki put together... Giovanni. Giovanni put together a children's uh, poetry um, CD. It was a book, but CD came with it. My youngest, I think, had this and would listen to it every night. Tribes, ham and eggs was on there. I don't need no ham. I'm high in cholesterol. He used to sing that all the time. And he embodied that, that song. And he didn't make the distinction between, you know, a Langston Hughes mother to son poem and tribe. He just understood that this was an art in which language was essential and how you stretch the language, how you made the, how you punned on the language, um, how you stretched out words. Like to some extent, I do think it can be a gateway drug. The question is, for me, will someone have the patience to live with the poem? There's something in media about rap, right? But you don't have to think too hard. There are, however, I think it might have been uh, one of the members of 
of Daylight was like, I said something in one year. It might have been Black Thought. I said something one year. It took you like seven years to catch that. <laughs> like, you know, but one hopes. I'm, a, I'm ever an optimist when it comes to art. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly. It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Who are the rappers who do it for you the most as, as a poet? Uh, all the members of Native Tongue Posse from, from, back in the, from back in the day. Jungle Brothers, Tribe Jungle Called Brothers, Quest, Tribe, De La. De La, Black Sheep. A little bit of Black Sheep, uh, Latifah, Moni, Light. Yeah, that was my... Was it Light? No, it was Moni Love. Moni Love. Light was, yeah. Light was La- just ahead of them. sister, that's but right. not. Yeah. That's right. So that's my my generation. And to be honest, man, you know, I had to, not a come to Jesus moment, but as a poet, I realized as much as Langston Hughes and Robert Frost and Gwendolyn Brooks and Amiri and Sonia and all those folks were influential it was that generation of rappers. I forgot who recently said it that um, allowed for a complexity of existence that the music was not capturing at that time. The native tongues yes. la- gave us the complexity. Gave us fuck being hard. Pasanus is complicated. Mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm, was such mm-hmm, mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. seminal moment for anyone who was. We did have a breadth yeah. of experiences being expressed by hip hop in the eighties and nineties. Uh-huh. I think recent years, it's a little different. What do you attest that to? I'm not quite sure. Um, I'm not quite sure what that is about. I mean, one thing I think about is that as we moved toward the nineties, the music got so dense, mm-hmm. like each verse would have mm-hmm. so many words when you're mm-hmm. talking about big Eminem, mm-hmm. you know, the people who were dominating the nineties, Jay-Z, mm-hmm. Nas, as opposed to what they were doing in the eighties, mm-hmm. that we got more dense, that 
you couldn't get any more dense unless you were speed wrapping, <laughs> right? So the more aggre- the more uh, revolutionary gesture would right. be to rhyme less, to have mm. fewer words. Mm. So now they rhyme mm. slower, right? <laughs> to where sometimes they need ad libs <laughs> to fill in the space. Otherwise, it would sound like spoken word poetry, right? It doesn't fit. The, and and I'm not saying it's better or worse. But I think some of us who lived for 90s hip hop right. are like, guys where I'm really slow. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't know why the politicization yeah. that was common in the 80s and the 90s has really dissipated. There's not really that much black nationalist, pan-Africanist, Mm-mm. you know, pro-worker, pro whatever mm-hmm. you want. Like that sort of, that strain of, it, that sort of strain of hip hop has basically gone away. There may be mm-hmm. some here and there, but it's not dominant. Like we were, we had a dominant strain of PE, KRS, poor righteous teachers, Damn. Tribe Called Quest would throw it in. Poor righteous. You know, right, public enemy was <laughs> all about it. You know, De La Soul would throw it. Like yeah. you feel, yeah. you know, and now a lot of it is like, I got a lot of money. Right. Whether or not I'm telling you the truth. Right. <laughs> I may actually have a lot. I may not. Right. I'm telling you, I got a lot of money. And I got a lot of women. Like, and I smoke a lot of weed. Like, cool. Yeah. What else you got? Well, that's what happens when you divorce the art. Mm, interesting. That's, I mean. What do you mean by that? I guess what I'm saying is like the the corporatization. I remember, and this isn't the case with Diggable, but I remember seeing, I ran into um, Greg Tate at Mm. uh, the bookstore on Mercer Street. And I think um, uh, Diggable's album, their last album together with the the pick on it, um, ran into, I said, Craig, what do you think? First of all, I was my one of my heroes. I just had to just be like, yo, props on Flyboy. Um, but I wanted to talk to him about something. I and he I said, What do you think about Diggle's album? He was like, uh, production, production, production. I was like, oh. But we we did jam on some of the and he was making the connection to um the politics of blackness, which the po- the political cultural moment that they were riffing off of, as Greg does, right? He has that long did he has that that long view, and he was talking about coming out of coming out of black power into the seventies when it was about trying to get like political um, office. You know yeah, what I mean? Like a little more integrationist. Yeah, exactly. The system. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, there was there was a bit of nostalgia, of course, that that those albums were hearkening back to, but it was also carrying the torch. It was also like the agenda of of carrying a message of of self determination, carrying the message of a certain kind of freedom that was like unapologetic mm. and, and the, you know, you just said it, <laughs> you know, it was like the bling arrived. I, th- I mean, I feel like I expected the Bush era and the Trump era 
to really inspire people to be like, I'm going to make a political song. Mm. And there's here and there. Mm -hmm. There's some. Mm -hmm. I expected the recession, mm -hmm. the significant recession, which had a significant impact on black and brown people, to lead to some significant change. Either people saying, I'm going to right. talk more about the hood. I'm going right. to right. wear less jewelry. Something. Or I'm going to wear more. Right. Whatever. Right. But I don't think it, ha I don't think any of those, I don't think. Trump or the first Bush or the recession had any significant, I think like Reagan had an impact. That's what I was great. On hip -hop. It was a mirror that made that connection. Yes. Like the best thing that happened to hip hop was Reagan. <laughs> but, but, but the, but the, there's something beautiful about Kendrick Lamar's song emerging as an anthem for this mm -hmm. generation around mm -hmm the killings of um, black and brown peoples at the hands, unarmed black and brown people at the hands. That particular song um, and a few other artists, interesting enough, they're more alternative, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. who are kind of carrying that consciousness and you can kind of see it. Kendrick in there. is to me like a throwback to what we had, mm -hmm. the folks that we loved mm -hmm. in the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. I think he stands out of this generation as like, Mm -hmm. bars, flows, lyrics, consciousness mm -hmm. to the, you know, like thinking of, you know, the community at a higher level, presenting the community at a higher level. And also there's a, there's a clear regionalism with mm. him, right? Mm. We know yeah. where he's from. Oh, for sure. Right? We know what That's block right. he's That's from. Right. We know which side of the <laughs> That's block right. he's from. That's right. And that specificness about where you're from was typical Mm -hmm. of the 90s, especially mm -hmm. in the 80s to a certain extent. And in a lot of ways, I think the nationalization of the culture, which it was national in the 90s, but it is sort of flattened of like, wherever you come out of, it doesn't, you're not supposed to have a sound or a mm. thing you talk about that mm -hmm. represents like, oh, I can tell he's from Newark because mm -hmm. he <laughs> like, you know, Houston sounds like, New York, you know, I, I don't think we have a, a sound, a, a regionalized of, yeah, sound. Yeah. Like we used to, which yeah. in a way was inherently politicized in that the the West Coast rappers are talking their shit. The way the police respond to them is different. The drugs they're dealing with is different. The George Clinton that they're rocking with at the barbecue is different. New York is responding to these <laughs> things differently. Now I'm like outside of Kendrick and some people, it's like, well, where are you from? Yeah. What do you believe? Yeah. Yeah. What are you all about? Like, yeah. I don't really know. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's also, I think, of you know, I was sort of saying corporatization. I'm also think globalization uh, as well. Maybe it benefits one's kind of sales not to kind of sure kind of stake yourself to one particular region because, you know, well, I wonder like, if you're from, if like you're from, go, go, for example, but if right? you're, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I don't, have anything, I don't have anything against go, go in particular. Me neither. And I really but, haven't listened to that. But it's a it. challenge for go, go to leave the DC area. Y yeah. I mean, like, you know? I mean, there's two, there's two minds of it. And I know that certain artists will, will build a local community. Yeah. And because they represent whatever it is, Tallahassee, Brooklyn, whatever, yeah. that then that community will show up hard for them. So you have a committed fan base. Right. Right. If you're a national artist, who are your committed people? I mean, you may have them, but you may, no, but the go-go thing, I just it makes my eyes roll into the back of my head. <laughs> Only because of this. 
I've been asking my my DC folks for years, where is DC hip hop? Every mm. other area that has a significant number of Negroes has a significant hip hop history, except for DC. Mm. They have a lot of black people. It's Chocolate City. They got a music scene. They got clubs. They got a crime scene. Where's the Where's the rapper who calls himself Rayful? Your phone gonna be blinging after this. No, but I mean, like, I'm not hating on DC. No, no, I know, I know. I'm like, I know. where's your guy? Like, I want to hear from you. I know. Where's your I guys? Well, it, it go go eclipses so much. That's what they always say. It eclipses. You know, you go to a blog party. You know, Sugar Bear. You know, I'm going old school now. You know, like, I mean, you know, Boston got more MCs than 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 DC. That's yeah, insane. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know what? It's an opportunity. <laughs> Somebody's listening right now. They're signing up a bunch of people right now. <laughs> the nation's capital. They're coming for us. Um. I ask everyone who comes on the show, what does being black mean to you and where does it show up in the work? I I hate to repeat myself on this, but W.B. Du Bois said, I do not have, I don't give a damn for any art that does not take up the mantle of speaking truth of black existence and all of its beauty and glory. Nice. And he set out to, to make that like a thing, right? So much so one of, one of his um, talks, um, can't remember exactly where it might've been in DC. Funny enough, he gave a talk and he read a poem and he asked who wrote this. And he said, you probably think it was John Keats. But in fact, it was County Cullen. Like he used Keats as his measure of greatness. Um, but at the same time, Cullen was also writing about, even though there was that sound, that kind of classical, kind of British <laughs> sonnet. He wrote so many sonnets. Um, James Weldon Johnson also said, similarly, no people have been dismissed if they had great art. Mm. And he too, it's sad that it, it went by, but last year was the hundredth anniversary of the very first anthology put together by James Weldon Johnson wow. called American Negro Poetry. Wow. Um, he wrote that in his introduction. There's, it's, it's, a, it's a great introduction it articulates so much that has animated my own kind of values as a writer yeah. of poetry. There's some other complicated stuff in there too. For me, it shows up in the work and carrying that torch of at my, at my innermost core as a writer of poetry, I am expressing my freedom. Because keep in mind, we were not supposed to be this close to language. To be this close to language, and I saw this when I was teaching down in New Orleans, where students, the literacy rate was very low. They could not put together, some of them, a sentence. 
And if you can't put together a sense, how can you articulate your world, your needs? Someone's always going to be giving you their agenda. So my poetry makes a lie of, of, first of all, personal expression of who I am. It reflects my own selfhood and the community that I come out of. Um, Secondly, it makes a lie of white supremacy Mm. and the history of that, right? Um, And this is what James Weldon Johnson talks about that might be problematic. No people have been looked upon as inferior if they've had great art. And that's what we've been kind of building. I also realize um, the inheritance Again, I kind of spoke about this already, um, not just as an, as an artist, but also as a teacher. Mm. And my teachers were both, I was in the classroom with them. And in the case of Robert Hayden, I wasn't in the classroom with them. Or someone in contemporary, Rita Dove. I read every poem mm. that she has written. I've also found through my connections with uh, Kaveh Kanem, uh, the Darkroom Collective, um, other writers of my generation for womb, we were very conscious of passing that legacy back to. So the podcast that I, that it all emerges out of a sense of service and a sense of freedom and a sense of love and cherishing the fact that whoever writes, they may pass away. They're sure going to pass away, but evidence of them is in their work. And I think particularly for us, um, undocumented, you know, we were three-fifths or by the law three-fifths. That poem, make poems, particularly poems by black and brown folk, um, does so much work than just art. Yes. It stands for us, and I was here, and I yeah. did something, and I thought deeply and created something. That's right. I imagined, I made, I'm a maker, which is the root word of poetry, poesis, Greek. Making. Making. Yeah. I mean, that was, for me, a big reason why I was like, I want to be a creative person and not some job. I don't think I ever even thought seriously about any other job, mm. but like... I wanted to be able to look back. I remember back. that when we met. Yeah. <laughs> All those years ago, else. I was like, he is going to be a writer. <laughs> and next thing I know, <laughs> you're doing that. like Snoop Dogg's like <laughs> but, first major piece in the New York Times. I was but, like. But there was, there's, there's a stack of, th- when I say, what did I do this week, this year? Yeah. I can point to, mm. I wrote that article, I wrote that book, I wrote that, I, di- I can, you know, because sometimes the time flies by, where did it go? That's what I did. And if I had nothing to show for it, I would be depressed. Mm. And because we mm. sat and made something mm-hmm. and we can look at like, okay, that's what I did. Maybe this article, this poem, maybe it's great, maybe it's not. It's, but I did something <laughs> and it's still there, right? I built something and it still exists. I needed that. And that's sort of what you're How do you about. think about that in relationship to being a father? That legacy. Now, granted, they're not they're not gonna get all up in your archives. Oh no. Right? No, no. But 
but there's a level well, they of- they care about certain things, right? Yeah, 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 there, yeah. There's been some podcasts that they wanted to listen to, certainly not all of them. <laughs> there's, when I write about them, yeah. they read they, that. <laughs> <laughs> my son is driving me nuts. I wrote an essay about it. Like, oh, I read your essay about me. <laughs> but um, I, you, my son said to me once, he said, his was years ago. He was like eight or nine. Mm. And I think he said, um, you know, our family's really special. And I said, yeah, we are. And then he said, yeah, most families don't have a successful podcaster in the family. <laughs> Like, okay, that's not what I was driving toward about why we're special, but sure. Sure, that for some reason that daddy does a podcast really stuck out in their mind for some reason. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You're, I was thinking, I mentioned earlier that like hanging out with your dad that one, mm. one Sunday, I'm sure it was, breakfast, the night before we went to BC Boys release party. And I remember it because it was, they had bungee jumping. <laughs> like they had like a crane and people were literally like being drawn up in bungee. I couldn't believe that. Anyway, Not next day jumping. though, like your dad was, first of all, cool dude, but he was also like, I remember him interrogating me. What are you into? What are you doing? What are you doing with your life? That's okay. That's about right. And he was an accountant. So yeah. like, he's like, I support the arts, but I don't really understand. Like you're a poet. So like, how do you make money? Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it was, it was, uh, but that, but that looking at your work, looking at your legacy, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm still hungry. Like I'm not, Resting on laurels, you know, it frustrates my family because sometimes they just want me to like. To do what? <laughs> to, to do what? To take out the trash? I'm just writing poems. What the fuck you want me to do? Oh, you best believe I do take out the trash. Of course but you're you asking, do. Right, right. Exactly. I know. But that tension is there, right? Like, the, do I need to be doing as much as I'm doing? Made me think about what we do for our families and we would do mm. anything and Kevin Hart has that um bit about well honey if you were in a fight with a mountain lion no I would not <laughs> jump in <laughs> I'm not saving you because he's probably gonna get me and if you are in a fight with a mountain lion even if you make it out do I want to be with the person who's left who suddenly has one arm <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. That's heavy. That's heavy. <laughs> My buddy thinks um, artists, well, first of all, I think artists, you know, we, we live in that space where, not that we're always thinking about the next project, but we can't help this relationship to our material. For oh us, God. it happens to be language. Um, if you're Painter, you know, I know painters, they just like, wait, you know, they're like at a party and they're like, oh, I got to go to my studio. And they just like start going to the canvas. Yes. So that's, there's that. But I do have a friend who feels, and I'm curious if you believe this, but that there's an element, particularly among black folk of John Henryism. Like, Ooh, what do you mean? Just, you know, John Henry, man, like always got to be doing something to prove uh -huh. one's kind of worth. Um, 
And we know the tragedy yes. of John Henry at, at, at the end there. Um, but I think with, with artists, it's just a natural impulse of who we are, you know? I mean, I don't feel a desire to prove myself to anybody. I may have earlier, mm -hmm. but not, not in, 20 years yeah but i mean i mean i guess there's a basic like oh, i'm gonna show them mm. sort of thing that mm. anybody who feels good about what they can do takes into anything mm -hmm. but like i don't walk around like that the thing you made me think about is that i think before i was 30 i didn't really have control of the creative impulse so it would just come at you all the time mm. So I just kept a post-it note all the time. I might be in the middle of a conversation with you. I might be asleep. Mm -hmm. I might be at a party, whatever. And like an idea starts to come in for a poem, an essay, a mm -hmm. story, whatever. I, I Sorry, I have to stop talking to you because I have to right. stop writing. <laughs> right. right. Don't talk right. to me right, right now. Right, right. Now, <laughs> you know, it, it's more controlled. I'm not going to be like, oh, my God, I have to zone out of this dinner because I have to write down these notes that just came in, right? The, I just got the message. <laughs> and, it, and like... No, no, I'm like, I, I got, I got yeah. you. I heard you. I heard you. When it's time to sit down, that it will be there and we'll come to get, you know, and like, I think I, I think I felt like if I feel a spark and mm. I don't write it down, I could lose it. Oh, for sure. And I may not get another one. Now I'm like, okay, I see you new idea. <laughs> you may or may not turn out to be great. After look, all, I'm going to test this. Right, you look good See if now. you're still around right, when I finally tomorrow, get to my desk. Or right, tomorrow, tomorrow right? morning when I get to the, you may not be as cute as you are tonight. So, so have, have a seat with the others. We'll get to you when it's your turn. I remember also another moment. You won't remember this. I think you were just about to finish your degree at Columbia. And oh, no. I only got through one year <laughs> of the two at Columbia. Really? I wasn't really when did the portable close. come out? Uh, after that. After, after that. After Columbia. This is ambition talking, right? Because this okay. is us, right? Yeah. We're like, we got the Tony Morrison's of the world. right? You're like, I'm going to be the next, which I loved. I'm going to be the You didn't say Richard Wright. Ralph Ellison. And oh, I love that, dude. <laughs> that was my no, man. I love that. I love that you said that because... To some extent, I, I try to pass down to my students or any young person, 95% of it, of being a writer, is confidence. Sure. And a certain level of, like you said, what else am I going to do? Right. There's, no plan <laughs> There's nothing else. But I love me it. To, right? And then you, you love, add the You love writing. Love, I love writing. I can't wait I to get it. back to the. Dude. I'm in my zone. Yes. I'm in my zone. Some people's zone is on the court. Mine is like at my well, desk. But if you're a writer who's pulling your hair out mm. as you're doing it, mm -hmm. I think that seeps into the work as opposed to somebody who's like, this is my favorite part of the thing <laughs> of, of sitting here with the yeah. text, rip it up, put it back together. I enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't need rituals. I don't need a no. candle lit. No. <laughs> like, I don't need none of that. You no. know? So, that tree that fell on my house the other day. Oh my God. You're so, you're such a writer. You're Instagramming about a tree fell on my house and you're giving me pictures of this giant tree, but you're like, I have a deadline, so I can't deal with this until three days. And I'm like, yo, that's such a, I'm like, yo, there's dishes in the sink, but I gotta get this thing done. I, I know where this character is going. I can't do that right now. That's my point. That's my point. 
And you know what? After I talked to you, I was like, or text, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to use this as the basis of what I'm writing right now. You should. I wrote about that tree. And that's that's what I mean. Like, when it comes, you got to go with it. But um, so the confidence thing, and in a way, you know, writers are parasites. Like, if something comes in, I think you talked to Nikki Giovanni about this. About um, No, Nicole. You talked to Nicole about this, which is like as a journalist, you were talking about being a journalist. And as a journalist, you have to yeah, tell the truth. And you got to sometimes that truth is going to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> you got to like get it, get it in there. And so that's how I am is like as a writer, as a poet, I, I reach for whatever is going to make the damn thing be its own, have its own heart, its own rhythm. I'm, yeah, man. It's, it's, people ask, what's your, what's your creative process? I'm like, it, it ain't pretty. <laughs> you want me to say something about, you know, I get my special pen and my pad and maybe light some candles. And no. It's, it's hungry. It's like, it's voracious, you know. Books, music, art. Uh, sometimes I'll just call up a buddy, like, "Yo, remember that scene and Gene Tumors came? What do you think that's about?" Just to get me going. Yes, you know. Thank you so much for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because. You can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. And maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with more amazing guests. Because the man can't shut us down. <laughs> <laughs>